Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Loungewear? Underwear? Those are two questions you might ask if you didn't realise that at BritishBoxers.com the answers are lounge here and under here. Um, That is that they sell super comfy loungewear and underwear made of luxury fabric. Not that they're inviting you to lounge at theirs or underneath theirs, which would be a bit weird and creepy. You name something comfy to wear. Go on, anything. No, not that. No, they don't do trousers filled with marshmallows and that wouldn't be very nice in the summer. Pyjamas, dressing gowns, hoodies, pants. Yep, all of them. And British boxers make them superbly too while being part of the Conscious Advertising Network, paying their staff properly like, you know, everyone should and are all nice to the planet too. Also like, well, everyone should. What I'm saying is they're properly nice people who make great underwear under there, which isn't under anything, I don't think. I've not visited, but I'm almost certain they have a fact rather than underground lair. If you go to British-Boxers.com and buy nice things, then at the checkout use the promo code PARPOLBRO15 and you'll get a nice 15% off your order and then you can lounge here, there or anywhere you blooming well like. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that covers every election upset and then continues to be upset long after it's over until the next one. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and as it's revealed that small boy playing the headmistress in the school's end of year show, Dido Harding, has applied to be the NHS England chief executive, on the plus side, this might finally mean that the government give the health service the billions in funding it needs. I mean, sure, it won't work and you'll have to get your MRI scans in Alton Towers car park by a 15-year-old doing a weekend shift for Serco, but hey, investment is investment, right? Last week, an Egyptian vulture was sighted in the UK for the first time in 150 years, something that ecologists have hailed as actually a very exciting development. I, however, would argue that as vultures tend to scavenge on the remains of dead things, this particular bird is merely the first to the party, having heard about our isles full of endless carry-on. The Independent Climate Change Committee has warned that we in the British Isles are woefully unprepared for climate change, which will come as a surprise to absolutely no one who lives here. We seem woefully unprepared for everything, and right now I reckon even an unexpected bout of hiccups could probably take us down. 
The Climate Change Committee, or CCC as they are known, which is confusingly also the name of a Spanish improv group, says that we're going to be having more severe heatwaves and intense rainfall in years to come. But of course, that could give us the plus sides that other tropical countries have. You know, for example, richer nations exploiting us as a tax haven and holiday resort. Homes need to be made to be more climate-proof, they suggest, but we all know they won't be as the government shun making buildings safe in order to spend millions on a royal boat that they can hide in while voters get swept away trying to swim to the polling station. Number 10 have said they'll table an amendment to the Environment Bill for infrastructure projects to have a net gain for the environment, which doesn't really sound like a thing unless you're aiming for HS2 to be made entirely of compost rather than just be a shit idea. The government have pledged a nature-positive future, and it'd be naive to assume they don't just mean that by letting every element of the UK die off and rot, it should be the perfect home for many more Egyptian vultures in a matter of years. The public are aware, it seems, that the future of the UK is potentially like an Atlantis that no one will want to search for. Or maybe they just don't want railways built through their garden, but they're very happy to have them through everyone else's. Whatever the level of selfishness of voters, it means that the people of Chesham and Amersham voted in their by-election for the Liberal Democrats instead of the Conservatives for the first time since it became a constituency in 1974. Sarah Green, with the expression of someone who's just been told it's their car that's blocked in an ambulance, beat the Conservative candidate and 90% chin Peter Fleet by over 8,000 votes, with the Green Party coming third and Labour getting just 622 votes with their worst by-election result ever, because hey, I guess they've got to be known for something. It'll be like how people go see shows and films that get one-star reviews just to see what the fuss is about. I think their whole campaign strategy now is just how like people go to see shows and films that get one-star reviews just to know what the fuss is all about. It's quite the coup for the Lib Dems though who fought a very local campaign for very local people, focusing on nimbyism because people only want change if it stops them getting change and it's prompted much talk from the Conservatives about a need for them to rethink their approach to planning reform which is currently based on whoever's just had lunch with Housing Minister and jeering sponge cake Robert Jenrick. The government say the planning bill will allow them to hit house building targets but many people are worried that'll just mean building on green spaces or putting a coal mine in the middle of their garden, something the Liberal Democrats will never ever do though that is mostly because because they'll never have enough seats in Parliament to push it through. The Cheshireman Amersham win brings the Lib Dems' total MP count to 12 and further demonstrates the cracks in the previously Conservative-dominated blue wall in the south of England, a perfect metaphor for the effects of the government's planning reform for commentators who aren't inventive enough to find a better one, like me. Liberal Democrat leader and Vizzini cosplayer Ed Davey celebrated the victory by knocking over a small plastic blue wall with an orange hammer, as though trying to make sure voters in Cheshire and Amersham immediately regretted their choices. I'm not sure why anyone thinks these political stunts work, as though what the public really wants is someone who hasn't got a clue about politics but might be able to play crazy golf and not be beaten by all the children. Still, I'm sure Davey's oh no dad please don't do that stunt will help the Liberal Democrats do very well in future elections with anyone in the constituency of, hang on let me check my notes, Mario Kart. It's heartening to see that the Conservatives can be beaten in areas that have previously been safe seats, but it's also massively disheartening that it's not to do with them regularly being unlawful or letting 150,000 people die unnecessarily, but because there's a chance that you might have to have new people in your neighbourhood instead of places that were convenient for hiding bodies. The Prime Minister and muted belly button fluff Boris Johnson called the result disappointing, but as far as we know that could just mean it has the potential to be the next Health Secretary. According to further leaked WhatsApp messages from the Johnson's former chief advisor and wannabe Victorian hypnotist Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister called sad trowel Matt Hancock fucking hopeless, which is jarring to hear because that means the Prime Minister has been right about something at least once. 
The messages showed that Johnson even considered handing responsibility for procuring PPE to preserved wet specimen Michael Gove, who could, of course, single-handedly make everyone rush to provide him with adequate face covering. Of course, Hancock has said the Prime Minister only said he was fucking hopeless, not because he is, which he definitely is, but because he was stressed. Which is interesting, as that might mean that under more stress, Johnson might tell the truth again and again, and we should really exploit this if possible by, I don't know, repeatedly getting children to ring him up and ask if he's their dad, or have stockists tell him that the gold wallpaper is all sold out. Of course, Johnson says he has complete confidence in Matt Hancock now, and better yet for the Health Secretary, the leader of the Commons and office assistant in its emo phase, Jacob Rees-Mogg, called Hancock a successful genius. Probably because for Mogg, letting 150,000 normal people die is worthy of a Nobel Prize, and puts Hancock on his list of idols just under Thanos and the Night King. Having Jacob Rees-Mogg call you a successful genius is like a doctor having Harold Shipman compliment them on their bedside manner. The issue is, being fucking hopeless is a badge of honour in the current government. I mean, everyone in it is. It just means Hancock fits right in with the gang. What isn't fucking hopeless right now? A fucking hopeless world gets fucking hopeless people in charge of it, doesn't it? It's why Dido Harding's applying for the role of Chief of NHS England, because she's appropriately underqualified to do the job right now. There's no need for someone like the current Chief and Ian McDermott tribute Simon Stevens, who couldn't stop laughing when he was asked if he thought Matt Hancock was hopeless by a journalist, because he understands the job and that just makes the government look bad. No, what they need is someone like ex-jockey Harding who can look at the NHS and think, hmm, rather than fix this, if it's not working, maybe I should just put it down. Harding says she wants the NHS to end its reliance on foreign workers, which makes you wonder if she's going to replace them with all the dogs she's just whistled. There's around 170,000 non-British workers in the NHS right now, and they are very much keeping the service going, so the only real way Harding could end a reliance on them is to close all the hospitals in England except maybe three and have two of those just for horses. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the only real way to thank all of those who've worked so hard during the pandemic is by offering them a way off this xenophobic island so they can work somewhere people might actually respect them. This is Dido Harding, though, whose track and trace system couldn't do either of the things in its very name, so chances are high that this is a ploy, and she'll just be given a £40 billion government grant for a recruitment initiative to get real British NHS staff, and then won't manage to employ a single person. Having Dido Harding as Chief of NHS England will bring the health service in line with the Metropolitan Police, who an inquiry into the murder of Daniel Morgan in 1987 found that they were institutionally corrupt. I mean, who isn't in this day and age, right? Get on board, don't get left behind. The report said Police Commissioner and what it looked like if elves were depressing, Cressida Dick, had personally placed hurdles in the way of attempts to uncover truths about the private investigator's death, probably because then she'd be able to justify shooting anyone trying to leap over them to catch a train. Dick said she has no intention of resigning, and the Home Secretary, when you accidentally bite the side of your mouth, but as a person, Pretty Patel, has no intention of asking her to either, instead blaming the Independent Office for Police Conduct for not being able to hold the police to account properly. I mean, how can you expect anyone to do their jobs properly if an entire agency that shouldn't have to exist isn't doing its job that it shouldn't have to do? If no one's around to stop Cresta Dick from actively interfering in cases, then how are we to unfairly expect that she might actually want to be a decent human being and do her job properly instead? We all know who the real criminals are here, which yes, according to Cresta Dick, are women holding a candlelit vigil. Any chances of making anyone accountable for any of these abuses of power are also, as you can tell, fucking hopeless. I mean, even the Electoral Commission is to be stripped of its powers to prosecute, just as it's been investigating the refurbishments to the number 10 flat, which does make you wonder what they might find in there and if there are certain rooms Johnson has set up like a scene from Seven. Ministers have said that the commission taking cases to court is a waste of people's money, which I guess it is, and why it'd be much easier if the politicians they investigated hadn't been inconsiderate enough to break the law in the first place. 
Another MP said the commission were biased because, you know, they only tackle people who breach the rules, which is, I mean, just awful. Why can't they just let everyone do what they want, maybe not even bother turning up to work? It's yet another agency that the government won't be accountable to, and yet another power grab that means soon the only way to really challenge the government with anything will be if you have dragons and an army of unsullied. What hope do we have then this week? Well, Boris Johnson is going to set out a plan to make the UK a science superpower, which, based on my comic book knowledge, means we'll end up something like the Hulk, completely uncontrollable and causing damage that's expensive to fix. On the plus side, at least we'll be green, which is actually an improvement. While posing in a lab coat and mask and looking unsure if he'd woken up at the sperm bank again, Johnson said he'd provide direction on how research is hardest for the public good. So I guess it's only time before young people are offered part-time apprenticeship work as lab rats. Chief Scientific Officer and upset Drew Carey, Sir Patrick Vallance, has been put in charge of the new Office for Science and Technology Strategy as part of the government's ploy to put everyone who might implicate them in a COVID inquiry into a top role so they won't complain as much. A herd immunity plan, if you like. With Vallance in charge, we can trust him that if the department do develop anything harmful, he'll at least try to make sure all of us will get to have a go. The Prime Minister has said that the 19th of July is looking good for lockdown restrictions ending completely, so I'm quite excited about us going into a full lockdown on July the 20th. Around 60% of all adults have now had their second jab, which is great news, but Johnson says foreign travel is still uncertain as we've got to stop the virus from coming back in, unless of course it has a good trade deal offer, in which case we'd probably hold a barbecue for it. Matt Hancock says the Covid booster jab plan for the autumn will come in a few weeks, so I expect that means in the autumn about a month after it's needed. MP for South Northamptonshire and human embodiment of the website next door, Andrea Ledsom, has said that some people are avoiding returning to work because furlough has been great for them. I assume by some people she means all the staff that pre-pandemic had to work with her. In a moment of actual opposition, the Labour Party have instead said that they want people to have the right to disconnect from work, probably because that way their leader and Acorn Archimedes 401 series, Keir Starmer, would be more relatable all the times he seems disconnected and isn't working. The UK now has a trade deal with Australia, which is the International Trade Secretary, and what it looks like when someone does actually switch off after work and, during Liz Truss, insists that it will not hit UK farmers, which she could be right about, but only because it's only a 47th of the trade we have with the EU and a lot further away, so I'm not really sure it's going to hit anyone or barely even breathe on them. Johnson said the deal would mean Australia could give us Tim Tams and we could send them penguins and then they'd send us Vegemite and we'd send them Marmite because nothing says successful deal like selling somewhere things that they already have in a version they actually prefer. Meanwhile, constantly collapsing Lord David Frost has advertised the position of a Director of Brexit Opportunities Department, which is probably one small desk in a corner facing a blank wall. They are looking for a visionary, inventive and dedicated leader to help us shape the future policy. Basically anyone who's got any ideas because they are completely out. I might apply, to be honest, and just constantly say things like, let's trade with Mars, and then laugh my face off as they actually take that seriously for at least six months and Boris Johnson tries to build a bridge there. In Northern Ireland, man who is constantly in the wrong resolution, Edwin Poots, has resigned as leader of the DUP after only 21 days, though he probably believes God made the world in seven, so he's done more than enough already. Poots quit when he agreed a deal about Irish language legislation with Sinn Féin, but didn't inform his party, and that meant the DUP revolted, which is what they do to most people. He's likely to be succeeded by all next Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, who came second in the DUP leadership race against Poots, and is seen as a far more moderate politician than his very brief predecessor, which I think in DUP terms means that he probably believes in some dinosaurs, but is opposed to same-sex marriage. But then I guess you'd have to think that some extinct reptiles happened in order to share the same views as them. In other news, former Speaker of the Commons and Wind in the Willows star John Burkow has said that he joined the Labour Party after years of being a Conservative. 
Critics say it's so he can be made a peer, but if that's true and that's what he really wanted, then he would have just stayed a Tory and donated £500,000 to the party. And a group of Conservative MPs want to include invertebrates into the animal sentience bill so that they too can get legal protection. There's some possible good news for Matt Hancock right there. Ah, it's bloody grass pollen season here and I've got one eye that's itching like it's waiting for the base to drop after an overly long build-up. Only one eye though. Uh, My right eye totally not susceptible to grass shenanigans. My left eye a watery mess. I'm sure there's some sort of hilarious political comparison to be made but my eye is too itchy for me to work it out. What is it? Is it the right just carries on regardless, the left is upset about everything I've, I'm, is this should I class myself as the only right wing comedian can I get a TV show yet is, do I get one yet I'm sure it, one day one day anyway um, yeah I'm taking all the things that I as a diabetic am allowed to take uh, things up my nose tablet things I've eaten honey which doesn't make sense because it's grass pollen so I don't know what you do for grass pollen uh, I should probably drink milk shouldn't I what else eats grass uh, do, I, do I have to lick an elk or something or a sheep I, can't, I really hope not I don't even know where I'd find an elk or a sheep um, I was in a field yesterday uh, which made it worse. I was doing a kids gig at the first festival of the summer, uh, which was so summer festival that most of the audience had left on the Friday and Saturday due to torrential rain. So I got to shout at the very few survivors. Um, it just felt very 2021. I was shouting at children in a mostly empty field under the grey skies while backstage I just kept uh, sniffing beckonets. Is this the new normal? Is it? Is this the new normal? Oh, I don't know. Um, anyway, quick thank yous this week to Joe, Lou Bottom, Helena, Connell and Taz for hitting up the uh, ko-fi.com forward slash bro. If you fancy donating to this show or even just supporting my new Beckonese addiction that I clearly have, please do so at the Kofi. Join the patreon.com forward slash bro. Even find the elusive ACAR supporter button. Review, shout about it, do a dance, tell your nan, all that stuff. That is it. That's really it for chat this week. I haven't got much else um, because uh, just I, hay fever, I, horror. Um, I've done very little else of interest as well. I didn't sort of realise how horrible it is to sneeze into the mask you're currently wearing. That is great. I mean, again, like, a bit like the incident I had a few weeks ago. It was one of those few moments where maybe masks are wrong. I mean, what are you meant to do when you sneeze into it? Do I have to remove the mask to deal with the horrors? But then I'll get in trouble because I was on the tube, so I have to keep it on. But then if I leave it on, then I sort of drown in my own hay fever slime. Choices, choices. It's very difficult. No one tells you about these things. Where are the government guides? if this happens Um, also lateral flow tests while you're having a sneezing fit are really really tricky like really tough like toughest level on a game show tricky and maybe Takeshi's Castle uh, should take note it would be a really good level Okay, uh, anyway, that's it. That's re- I've really got nothing else. Um, on this week, uh, it's a bit of a sort of straight-up professional interview. Um, it sounds a bit weird. You- you'll see in a minute. Uh, basically, I asked very nice professional things to my guest, uh, who's been a political broadcast journalist for so long, um, that I just sort of didn't feel I could ask her questions like, but how do you not just say, Michael Gove all of the time? Um, so I've asked her sort of very nice questions. You'll see. Um, but it was a nice chat. The guest is Carol Walker, who's written a new book all about the Secret Lobby Journalist Club, which um, is really super interesting. Interesting. So I hope you will enjoy it. But I am very uh, grateful to have coming on the show. Um, plus, there's a little bit in the middle about the Popo 50, which isn't what anyone calls them in the UK. And I'd say that that's yet another thing we should hold against them as an institution. <laughs> When I think of a lobby, the first thing that pops into my head is a beige-coloured waiting area where reception staff stare at you with disdain for possibly wanting them to do something while music plays. It's of a specific genre that means you're never quite sure if you're actually hearing anything or not. 
In Westminster, though, the lobby is arguably one of the most important places in British politics. Not only is it where various business representatives accost MPs, hoping they'll forget that when they were Prime Minister they didn't believe in public funding, but would now like tons and tons of public dosh for the failing company they work for, or possibly hope to accrue a multi-million PPE contract because they once wore a mask in a school play and it didn't seem hard. It's also the home, though, of lobby journalists, the reporters who've been given special access to just what is going down in politics town before they're then given the task of relaying it to us, the public. You know, so several of us online can then either say it's nonsense, the exact opposite of what was really said, and they know because they have a friend who once worked for Prime Minister, or that it's all just a conspiracy by giant lizard aliens who, for some reason, rather than take over the world, just want to repeatedly fail to deliver a bill on social care. Whether you're a fan of the mainstream media, consider it biased or aren't even sure what it is as you still get all your news from the town crier and the occasional pigeon mail. It is unarguable that British politics and political journalism are as integral to each other as shoemaking and key cutting. And this nearly 100 year old exclusive club has been a major part of shaping the country, even if sometimes that shape has been an endless circle of despair. Throughout history, the way in which the official spokespeople have treated the journalists they address or which specific words they've chosen to relay the Prime Minister's intentions have led directly to changes in elections, politicians resigning and, you know, all the sorts of things that used to happen before this current lot who refused to be accountable for anything. I mean, even giant lizard aliens would step down if their boss said they were hopeless, wouldn't they? So is the lobby still relevant in today's politics? Does the lobby mean journalists are just relaying whatever the government dictates? And just what is it like having to twice a day sit in a room with many of the politicians I can't stand to see on TV for more than two minutes? This week, I spoke to veteran broadcast journalist Carol Walker, who's just released her book Lobby Life about her more than 20 years as part of the exclusive journalist club in Westminster. In it, she details the history of the lobby, just how decisions and briefings in there have directly changed history and the importance of transparency in political journalism. It is a really, really fascinating, engaging read, and it really casts a light into just how that element of British politics works, despite most people being completely unaware that it even exists. And... I can't say it wasn't slightly intimidating interviewing someone who's been doing broadcasting for a lot longer than I have, but it was great to talk to Carol and ask her all about her many years as a lobby journo. I hope you find this chat as interesting and insightful as I did. Here is Carol. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Um, I found your book such a fascinating read and there's so many moments in it, which I think is often the case when you look at political history, uh, where you think that recent events are something that's only just, ha- you know, something that we're only experiencing now and, and then suddenly realising, oh no, this has happened at several points throughout the history of Parliament. Um, but I think let's start right at the beginning, which is, I think for many of the listeners, and I, and I say this, I'm going to put I'm going to put the ignorance on them, even though it definitely was the same case for me. When we hear of the parliamentary lobby, we think of things like the recent David Cameron story we think of lobbyists I don't think that many people know about the very secretive uh, lobby journalists Um, and I just wonder if you could explain exactly what that means to be granted access to these regular briefings well hello Tiernan and uh, thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast and yeah I mean I think that's part of the reason why I wrote the book because um, when we're inside what people like to talk about as the Westminster bubble uh, everyone talks about the lobby but it's one of those things that outside of that world a lot of people don't know or if they do and they're slightly confused about what it means and the first thing to say is that it's nothing to do with lobbying it's not the sort of thing that David Cameron was um, up to lobbying uh, is when uh, companies 
get somebody influential or sometimes they'll actually hire a, a lobbying company to talk to ministers, advisors, MPs or party groups to sort of say, oh, look, do you realise how damaging this policy is or this proposal is? Or in the case of David Cameron, do you realise that uh, the, this kind of government support isn't really available to lots of really important companies like the Greensill company that I happen to be working for? Um, the Westminster lobby is a club of political journalists. And so everyone from your Laura Koonsbergs and Beth Rigby's down to the Westminster correspondents of many of the big regional newspapers, those that are still surviving, will have a journalist in the Westminster lobby. And you get this little brown laminated lobby pass and it gives you access to lots of bits of parliament, which you'll never get to see if you get to go on a tour of the Houses of Parliament. Um, just to the, the added and one of the most interesting parts of life as a lobby correspondent or a lobby reporter is that you get a, a briefing from the prime minister spokesperson twice a day when parliament is sitting. And confusingly, that's often simply referred to as the lobby. So journalists will say, well, I'm going to the <laughs> lobby, but they mean that they're going to the Downing Street briefing. Um, and also, there's a third meaning, just to confuse people even further, <laughs> which is one of the reasons it's described as the lobby is because you have access to the members' lobby, which is literally the, the Gothic atrium right outside the chamber of the Houses of Parliament, which you have access to as a lobby correspondent and used to be the best possible place for collaring MPs, ministers, rebels, finding out what they're up to and having a, a quiet word with them. So that's what the lobby means. And uh, in the book, I try to explain a bit more about the significance of all these aspects of it. And, and from its uh, from reading the book, the most important bit seems to be those two briefings a day uh, that you're having with the the prime minister's sort of official spokesperson. Um, and I'm guessing that's that's a very key way, and that we get a lot of our news now about what the government's about to do, or maybe what has just gone on that we we were unaware of. Um, and what's the difference? Because what I found very interesting in the book is obviously it depended on the prime minister and depended on their spokesperson as to how much that message was um, spun, I suppose, to use uh, that word for, for specific uh, spokespeople. But, you know, it depended on how much that kind of those messages were kind of spoon fed to the journalists. And so how, you know, how difficult is it as a journalist to, to go into those meetings and kind of take away your own account of, of what's happened? Look, these meetings, obviously, if you're going twice a day frequently in your working day, they're almost part of a, a routine and they can be quite dull or they can be quite boring. I went to hundreds of them uh, during the more than 20 years that I was a lobby correspondent. And um, very often I would come out of them and say, well, you know, that was an hour out of my life. I'll never get back. I don't think <laughs> I learned a single thing. Um, but they are also the, the crucial fulcrum of that relationship between the government and the media, which is an absolutely vital part of our democracy. And in each one of those lobby briefings, the prime minister spokesperson will be trying to convey and hoping will get reported 
what the government's view, the government's perspective, what its objectives are on any given day. And the journalists will be going in to try and get a story. <laughs> so on a day um, such as we had recently when Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's former chief advisor, released a whole load of new texts, uh, which he said he'd received from the Prime Minister during the early days of the pandemic. Journalists will have gone in there and said, um, well, does the Prime Minister really believe that the uh, Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, is hopeless? And the spokesperson will prob probably have said something like, of course, he's got full confidence in Matt Hancock. Oh, well, that's important. First of all, we know that the Prime Minister's got giving Matt Hancock his backing. He's siding with his health secretary, not the guy he sacked. And then, of course, the journalists will press. So are those, are those texts authentic? And the spokesperson will probably have said something like, well, these were private texts with an advisor. We don't talk about leaks. And they'll keep pressing on that. So, so are you saying he never sent them? And then they'll come away and there will probably be an about a dozen questions along that those lines and say, well, they certainly didn't deny that those texts were actually sent by the prime minister. So they must have been authentic. So that process of the engagement between some of our most experienced and astute political journalists and the spokesperson for the prime minister um, really do form an important part of our political storytelling. And as you said, it's the experience bit because uh, I'm guessing that the more you get to know the spokesperson, the more you know the signs and the more you know how to interpret what it is you're being told. And again, I found it absolutely fascinating about talking about Bernard Ingham. And I think uh, I can't remember which journalist mentioned it, but the fact that he would sometimes the way he raised his eyebrows meant that you knew how to take a certain statement. And so that must make it quite hard for new journalists going in. You know, if, if you're just being newly introduced into the lobby, it must be very hard at first to work out exactly what information you're being given or exactly how to take the story away if you don't know the atmosphere that you're in. It is difficult when you're a new girl, as I was back in 1996 in the lobby. And it was even harder then because things were much more secretive and the, the code was even more complex. So now, for example, everything that the spokesperson says in a lobby briefing is on the record. You can quote it directly. That was not the case when I first started in the lobby. Um, everything that you were told there was on what's described as lobby terms. So you can use it as background, but you could talk about um, senior sources or my sources at Westminster, or I think they gradually progressed that we could talk about a Downing Street source. Uh, and of course that's quite misleading for people who are reading the stories or difficult to read for people who are looking at the stories. So they say, so they think, well, it's a Downing Street source. So does that mean it's officially sanctioned by the prime minister or is it, you know, was it the cleaner just mentioning something to somebody on the way out? Um, so yes, it, it does take a bit of time to get used to the rules and the workings and the code of the lobby. And certainly when I first joined, I was also very aware of the, of the real hierarchy. There were all the political editors, all of them blokes. And, and back in those days, we used to actually go into number 10 Downing Street and we'd actually be in the sitting room, in the prime minister's sitting room. 
And there'd only be enough places on the sofa for, you know, the big boys who were the political editors and, and were important. And a new, a new girl like me sat on the floor and, and furiously took notes and uh, hoped my shorthand would hold up because in those days you weren't allowed to take in any kind of recording equipment or anything. So, yes, it's something that it does take a, t a bit of time to get used to, but it, it is much more open. It is now on the record. And uh, the lobby rules were updated by uh, Tom Newton Dunn when he was chair of the lobby journalists. Uh, he's now, of course, a, a senior political commentator at Times Radio, where I now work. Um, but the, the, the new opening line of the lobby rules was that um, it is an open and transparent organization. And that is a massive change. Um, I, I talked to uh, Chris Moncrief, who was a legendary figure in the lobby. He died, sadly, uh, recently. He was the chief political correspondent of the Press Association News Agency, which is, in the days before Twitter, was an absolutely essential source for all political journalists. And he said that when he'd joined the lobby back in the 1970s, it was like MI5, he said. He, said, he was warned don't even tell your wife that you've been to a lobby briefing from the Downing Street spokesperson. It, it was that secretive. And the rules actually stated, do not talk about a lobby briefing anywhere that you might be overheard by someone who wasn't there. So uh, it's changed a lot. But yes, there's still a code. Um, there are still rules. There are still things that you learn as you work in the lobby. That's so fascinating. And I, I mean, with, you know, the, the lobby meetings now being transparent and with them now being on record, how key are they in today's politics when we've had, I mean, you mentioned Dominic Cummings early, we had a whole year where everyone online, every time it said an unnamed source, they go, well, that's Dominic Cummings then. And it felt like a lot of the agenda was being driven by stories leaked by him. So if you've got secretive or unnamed accounts coming by an advisor, but you've got the, the lobby being transparent, does that kind of undercut its power has it has it changed in its usefulness in in sort of viewing British politics today? Well, it's certainly changed a lot. But what has always been true is that the lobby briefings from the Downing Street spokesperson are only ever one source for those political journalists. They will know that what they're getting from those briefings is the line, the perspective that the government wants to put out. It may be equally or even more important to find out what other Conservative MPs are thinking and planning to do. Uh, and if you think back, for example, to Theresa May's government, it, it was absolutely vital when she was battling to get her Brexit deal through. Um, the, the Downing Street spokesperson may have said, this is a great deal, which, uh, you know, is going to transform society. And you go straight outside and talk to some of her Tory MPs and you'd know immediately that it wouldn't have a cat's chance in hell of getting passed. It, they obviously, of course, would be talking to other parties, finding out what the opposition are doing, what the SNP are doing and what individual rebels are doing and saying. And interestingly enough, when Dominic Cummings was in Downing Street as the Prime Minister's chief political advisor, he didn't regularly brief the lobby. He wasn't um, the spokesperson who was there briefing the lobby in those formal briefings. But every now and then he'd sort of wander around to an area where he knew a lot of political journalists might be gathering, for example, in um, 
the press area looking down onto the Commons chamber after Prime Minister's questions. And if he wanted to get out a little bit more of his spin, he'd just start talking and everyone would know that at that stage, he was a key and probably the most influential advisor in Downing Street. So what he said, and of course he was political, um, and that's another difference. The spokesperson for the prime minister is, is a civil servant. Um, so talks about government policy, won't talk about what they think of the Labour Party's view. If you want a bit of political spin, and if you want a, a closer idea, perhaps, of from someone who's far more powerful in Downing Street, well, yes, they'd all be mobbing around Dominic Cummings to hear what he had to say. Right. That's fascinating. But it obviously doesn't take away then from the usefulness of the importance of these kind of official briefings, which are on a different level. That's brilliant. And, and I wondered how you sort of felt uh, quite a broad question, really. But I wonder, you know, you were a lobby journalist for 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, more more than 20 years. More actually, than 20 yeah. years. Yeah. And I, I just wondered how you feel now now that you're sort of a freelancer, you can step away from it a little bit. Obviously, you still very much work in politics and your Times Radio show and everything. But I, I wonder how you feel the relationship between the press and politics in, in 2021 in the UK is because I mean we've had uh, just this week we've had uh, the speaker uh, Lindsay Hall being very upset that once again details of restrictions have gone out to the press before they've gone out to Parliament and uh, we've also had the rather sort of upsetting issue when uh, Nick Watt was being chased down the street by sort of by angry anti-vaxxers and I wonder does it does it feel sort of more volatile now is it pretty much the same as it always has been uh, you know when you've been involved in it um, are, are we in a healthy place between between politics and and the press? What I would say is I think we're in a much less antagonistic relationship between the media and the government, uh, certainly than we were um, just over a year ago. I mean, the first thing to say is that clashes between um, government number 10 political journalists um, have been going on uh, for well, since the lobby was first created almost 140 years ago. And I mean, you know, Margaret Thatcher was furious at the way the BBC was reporting the Falklands War because she felt they weren't being sufficiently um, patriotic. Uh, Harold Wilson was uh, absolutely convinced that uh, all the journalists were absolutely out to get him. I mean, there, were, there have been numerous clashes throughout um, our history. Tony Blair talked about the media as feral beasts um, in one of his final speeches as prime minister. Um, I think if you look back to uh, the general election of 2019, and general elections, of course, when feelings of running really high are always times when there are clashes and blow ups. But if you think back to that time, uh, we had um, ministers refusing to go on to the BBC's Today programme, considered a flagship programme by many journalists. Uh, there was this very high profile decision by Boris Johnson not to uh, subject himself to a long interview by Andrew Neil, who was at the BBC then before he um, jumped ship to GB News. Uh, we had uh, ministers refusing to go on Channel 4 News, who at one stage put, a, put an, a, an empty chair with an ice sculpture on it when they were doing a, a, a discussion about climate change. We had a long boycott when nobody would go on Good Morning Britain. Um, I mean, things were at a pretty low ebb. And that was driven, certainly in part, by the views of Dominic Cummings 
and uh, Lee Kane, who was then director of communications. And these two had worked together on in the vote leave campaign during the Brexit referendum. They had found that they could communicate directly. They could use social media. They could use all kinds of different data to target their message at different groups of voters. And they simply thought that the mainstream media didn't get it, were too much trouble, and it was time to do things very differently. And Dominic Cummings even wrote that uh, in one of his famous blogs um, back at the beginning of um, 2020. Um, and that really very difficult relationship um, between Number 10 and the political journalists um, continued right up through the early stages of the pandemic. And you, you may remember there was actually a walkout by political journalists when Number 10 tried to restrict certain briefings to a particular group of journalists. And all the lobby journalists simply walked out en masse, which is interesting because <laughs> these, these figures are very, very competitive when it comes to getting to stories. But there, there, there comes a point where they still have a... Um, a, a sense of collective responsibility about the way that political journalists should be um, seen and should be treated. Um, but since then, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane have both left. Um, there is now a whole new media communications team in place. Um, and I think a lot of that friction um, which was intentional, which Dominic Cummings thought was a good thing, um, has dissipated. Of course, there are still disagreements. Of course, there are still times when number 10 will complain about the political journalists and the political journalists will feel that they're not getting what they would expect from the government and individual broadcasters will say, why didn't you put a minister up for my show? But I think that there is now more mutual respect for the different roles that the media and the government have. And you mentioned um, that incident when Nick Watt uh, of the BBC's Newsnight programme was hounded in a pretty aggressive way by some anti-lockdown protesters. And I thought it was telling that Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, actually tweeted his support and, and tweeted on the record, as did indeed the Home Secretary, um, their support for journalists going about their job. Boris Johnson, of course, was a journalist himself. He always says that he supports a free press. And, and I think it's great. As a journalist, I'm absolutely delighted um, that the man who's running the country took the time to tweet his support, not just for Nick Watt, but for journalism in general. Yes, it was a relief, wasn't it? Because I think there was a, especially we were talking about sort of a year ago when, when things felt uh, there was a lot more tension between the press. There was a lot of concerns that it was going the way of sort of Trump in the States because Trump was very, had a lot of animosity towards the press and was quite uh, violent in the way that he spoke about a lot of journalists. Um, and just seeing the Prime Minister stick up for journalists in the last week shows that it's completely different here. But I, I wondered, you know, is some of... Um, the the way in which uh, I suppose the, the relationship between politics and, and uh, journalism has that been changed by the televised press briefings we've had because um, 
you know, we talk about the lobby and obviously that's now transparent and it used to be secretive, but these ones are right out in the open. Everyone's seeing the journalists line up and for good or bad, the pandemic's meant that we, a lot of them are on video. We can see them quite clearly rather than in a room of hands <laughs> trying to fight for a question. Um, and, you know, that seemed to be very effective, especially online when one journalist after the other will almost ask the same question again and again to really hammer a point home. And do you think that's been that's been a good thing, a, a, a good move for journalism? And should we kind of continue down this path or was it better when it was hidden in a room somewhere in uh, in number 10? Uh, no, I think that having uh, ministers, the prime minister there on the record answering questions, I would always, as a journalist, completely welcome that. I think that uh, ministers, the people who are making the decisions that affect our lives and our livelihoods, absolutely should put themselves up for public scrutiny. Um, what is interesting is that it was the experience of those uh, on-camera news briefings, which certainly at the beginning of the pandemic were drawing huge audiences. Uh, it was partly what was seen in number 10 as the success of those briefings, which prompted uh, the decision to have what were described as White House style news briefings and Allegra Stratton was appointed to, to hold what would have been lobby briefings on the record, on camera, as the ministers have. And um, we can come back to why they didn't happen um, in a minute, if you like. Um, but what is interesting is that at the same time as those news briefings were happening, the lobby briefings were continuing off the record as well. And indeed, uh, because of the uh, coronavirus restrictions, they, like all the rest of our lives, moved online. So people were uh, actually joining remotely, um, they were actually um, what they what the lobby journalists decided to do to make it manageable because of quite significant numbers of people who were joining at that stage was that one senior lobby journalist um, who at the, who was the chair of lobby journalists at the time, which was Jason Groves of the Daily Mail, actually asked questions on behalf of everyone and everyone on WhatsApp was able to follow up with lots of different <laughs> questions. And if you talk to any of the political journalists they will say, well, yes, what we got in those on-camera briefings, it was great to have it because we had a minister or the prime minister and the scientific advisors on the record giving the government line. But what we could do at the lobby briefings is dig down into the detail to say, well, when you say PPE is being provided, you know, exactly what are the figures? What are the figures this week? Um, if they, if that is the case, why uh, in the case of this particular care home, haven't they got any at all? And all of the journalists would say that they got a lot more detail and were able to get to what lay behind those public pronouncements by having the chance to question the prime minister spokesperson in great depth. And, and indeed, what happened at that time is that um, because so many other political gatherings weren't happening and because you could join online instead of having to actually go along um, to a, a building at Westminster to go to the briefing, the numbers expanded enormously. And so there were huge numbers of people joining, huge numbers of questions, and of course, a lot to ask about at this at the time of this unprecedented crisis. So what is interesting is that the lobby not only continued in parallel with those on the record news conferences, but was as important as ever. 
That's fascinating. Do you, do you think that means they'll keep them once it's over, or do you think they'll be very quick to go? Oh, we can't handle that many questions. We're gonna, <laughs> we'll stop these immediately. <laughs> well, they have actually just started doing some in-person briefings. For example, there were some at the G7 summit, and that is in part uh, governed by what happens with coronavirus restrictions and how many people you can have in a room and so on. Um, what is interesting, though, is that that decision to appoint Allegra Stratton to do lobby briefings on camera for which they built this hugely expensive swish studio purpose built uh, in a building adjacent to number 10 Downing Street. Um, after Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane left, um, that plan was abandoned. That was part of their attempt to say, well, look, let's not bypass the lobby, but let, let's dilute its power. Let's communicate more directly. But what happened was when a new communications team came in and there were a whole series of rather uncomfortable questions uh, for the prime minister about a past relationship with uh, the businesswoman, uh, Jennifer Arcuri, about who paid for the wallpaper in Downing Street, about some of his other more personal texts, a whole series of questions. And what they realised was, Oh, well, if we have Allegra Stratton up there um, and people are asking about these things on the record, um, it could get quite awkward because you'll have a spokesperson on the record. How long can she just say no comment? How difficult is that going? To, how is that going to look for the government's reputation? And will these stories, which at the moment are buried on page seven of the Daily Mirror, actually then be on the main broadcast news bulletins? And at that stage, I think um, Boris Johnson, I'm not saying he was veering around like a shopping trolley, but Boris Johnson, who'd been really, really keen to have these tele televised briefings from Allegra Stratton, um, decided that they were a really, really bad idea after all. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Carol in a minute. But first, one of the reasons I never got into Line of Duty was because it seemed a bit much to spend time watching a show about unaccountable corrupt police when you know we already had the news. 
Last week, the report was released into the way the Met concealed or denied its failings over the unsolved murder of private investigator Daniel Morgan in 1987. And the big headlines that you may have heard were, the Metropolitan Police is institutionally corrupt. This very concept might shock you if you've never heard of Hillsborough or Grieve or many other incidents including last September when it seems the Home Secretary may have influenced the Hertfordshire Police's response to Extinction Rebellion protesters blocking delivery trucks for News Corp owned newspapers. 13 people were arrested, 62 people made a small sigh when they couldn't do a crossword and 4 people were upset when their fish and chips were just flung into their hands. A magistrate's court in St Albans was told two weeks ago that Pretty Patel made several phone calls direct to the Chief Constable which would directly contradict the principle of operational independence of police in the UK. Luckily though, all those recordings were lost due to an IT glitch, so it's just too bad that we'll never know. Computers, eh? Oh, if only they had an undelete or people who could fix corrupted files or, you know, a way to make copies. It is such a shame we don't live in the future. I won't go into all the details of Daniel Morgan's unsolved murder as there is a brilliant, brilliant podcast all about it from 2018 uh, that you should check out if you haven't already called Untold, The Daniel Morgan Murder. Uh, But to summarise, the private investigator was murdered with an axe in the car park of a pub in Sydenham, South London. Several people who knew Morgan believed he was about to sell stories of corruption in the police to a newspaper, which may be why he was killed, but the Met Police said there was no evidence at all to suggest any officers may have been involved. Over the next three decades, misinformation was put into the public domain, suspects were arrested then acquitted, cabinet ministers blocked efforts to have a public inquiry and potential connections of the suspects to the news of the world were discovered. 35 years, four investigations, an inquest and a failed trial. All very dodgy, unnecessarily difficult and so very upsetting for Morgan's family who've been chasing closure and justice for so, so many years. The independent panel on Morgan's murder was set up in 2013 and this long-awaited report was meant to come out in May until the Home Secretary blocked it for several weeks saying she needed more time to assess it for national security reasons. I mean, it hadn't met officials while on holiday in Israel so I doubt it could be as much of a risk as Patel is. The inquiry was set up to look at if police were involved, then how, if police corruption protected those responsible and if there were corrupt relationships between police, private investigators and journalists. And basically, long arm of the law story short, all of the answers were yep, 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 and going so far to say that not only were the Met Police not honest in their failings, they were the single greatest obstacle to truth and justice. I mean, they only had one job, and they did pretty much the exact opposite, which must be why the Home Secretary is so protective of her kindred spirits. Police Commissioner Cresta Dick, who was then Assistant Commissioner, is named as blocking access to a police internal data system and sensitive information about the case, but never ever gave a good reason as to why she did. This is the same woman who oversaw the operation where police killed Jean-Charles de Menzies on the London Underground in 2005, which also no officers were ever charged for, and Cresta Dick received a promotion shortly after. And this is also the same woman who had officers charged into women holding candles at a vigil for a woman who was kidnapped by a police officer. I'm just saying, it's not really a good look for someone who's supposed to up hold the law but appears to mainly be standing above it and deciding it's far beneath her. Dick has said sorry to Daniel Morgan's family but won't be resigning, though to be fair in that way she's being very prime ministerial about it. While Boris Johnson's anti-corruption SAR has put pressure on Dick to resign, the Met have rejected the report's findings and both the Home Secretary and Mayor of London's Sadiq exhausted Tintin Khan have said they have full confidence in the police commissioner. So who polices the police if the police are doing the exact opposite of policing yet again? I don't know. Uh, If it was a film, I guess criminals who felt redundant would have to step up and form a vigilante team. Or maybe we'd all just cross our fingers and hope that karma is really a thing. The Global Corruption Barometer measures the proportion of a country's citizens who believe their government and public institutions are corrupt. But the Home Office wouldn't even fund the inclusion of the UK in their most recent report, which isn't really a shining beacon for everything being alright. So, I don't know what's next. 
but maybe, just maybe, Line of Duty should be reclassified as light entertainment. Untold, the Daniel Morgan murder is on all the podcast platforms and I will link to it in the podcast blurb too. And the Global Corruption Barometer, if you'd like to see how everywhere else in the world fares, uh, can be found at transparency.org. And now, back to Carol. Yes, that does that does explain his uh, sudden change of attitude towards it. That's fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you, well, a different angle of uh, your experience as a lobby journalist and uh, something you mentioned earlier, but you were, uh, you said the, the only woman in the in the lobby room when you first started. Um, and obviously, uh, and you speak about it in the book, it was quite like a gentleman's club uh, for quite some years. Um, has that changed? I mean, has the atmosphere of working Westminster uh, for female journalists changed uh, a, a lot in the in the last 20 years? I think it has changed significantly, mainly because we have got so many more female journalists in senior positions. Um, There were other women in the lobby when I started, um, but really only a handful of them. And very often I would be the only woman in a particular lobby briefing. Um, I mean, there were people like Eleanor Goodman and uh, Julia Langdon who who forged a path well ahead of me. But yeah, it did, when, especially when I first started, feel very much like a gentleman's club. And, and in a way it reflected Parliament at the time, because especially before um, there was a big increase in the number of women MPs elected in 1997, in Tony Blair's first landslide victory. But prior to that, uh, you know, women were very much in the minority in Parliament and indeed in the lobby. I think that has changed significantly. Um, I think some female journalists still feel that they battle a bit against, um, maybe it's not so much of a gentleman's club, but a few perhaps slightly more macho attitudes. And again, I think that is something that has changed a lot uh, very recently. Um, But I think some people may remember that back in 2017, when all the Me Too movement hit Westminster, and there were a whole series of allegations about the past behaviour in particular of senior MPs, ministers, and so on. And I think that that forced an awful lot of people to rethink uh, their behaviour towards women and the the way they had behaved towards women in the past. I mean, I think it goes along to a degree with with changes in society. I mean, when I I worked in journalism for many, many years before I went to Westminster and I worked in very male-dominated newsrooms and you know, the, the men who were made slightly, uh, made the sort made, it would be quite normal for men to make the sort of suggestions which these days I think most would consider to be out of bounds. And things like wandering hands were a kind of routine problem if you went to the pub or a party. And I think that uh, women rightly have now asserted themselves. Uh, have now made it clear what sort of behaviour is and isn't acceptable. And I think that that uh, moment in 2017, when a lot of that misbehaviour was was exposed, was a a significant moment. And I think that what is, is really valuable for our whole society, our journalism, is that the lobby is now much more reflective of society at large, 
I think to have people like Laura Koonsberg and Beth Rigby as our most high profile political journalists says a lot about what women can do. Um, I would just say, though, that I think that women at Westminster, as elsewhere, still quite often struggle to balance the commitments of, of family life and long hours um, a lot more. Uh, dads uh, take on a lot more parental uh, duties than they perhaps used to a few decades back. But I think that's still an issue for a lot of ambitious women. Yes, that's a good point. Isn't it? Because I know, it, was it Stella Creasy that put forward the motion about having appropriate cover for maternity leave? And that still seems to be something that isn't isn't very thought about at all in uh in in parliament whatsoever but it's very i mean it's good to know that representation is definitely changing and that's seeming a bit more equal and it it definitely appears as just a, a viewer myself that uh in among sort of political journalists there's uh a lot more female journalists than there ever have been i think which is must be just good for an audience to see as well yeah i think uh absolutely we we want journalists who journalists who reflect all different parts of our society. I should say that when it comes to ethnic representation, that that's still rather lagging further behind. And uh, I, I talk in the book about the experience of uh, Anne Alexander, who was the first non-white member of the lobby, and some of her experiences um, were really, you know, pretty shocking. And I think that the that has also changed. We've got a few more. Uh, lobby journalists from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, but it is taking time for the lobby to catch up on that. Uh, I think certainly the, the more diverse our political journalists are, the more that they are going to pursue uh, aspects of our political and daily life that matter to the widest possible audience. I wanted to ask you as well, you know, you've had, uh, you, you've worked directly with politicians now for quite some years. And I think uh, something I'm definitely guilty of on this podcast as well, but also I normally do it for a comedy point of view, but I think we often, you know, uh, dehumanise politicians or maybe, you know, we see them as certain caricatures because of the way in which they're presented in headlines. Does sort of working directly with people mean that you view politics differently, that you digest it differently because you know them as real human beings? Well, one thing that quite often shocks people is when I say that most of the politicians that I know and have dealt with are actually really decent people who are trying quite hard to do a good job for their constituents and to raise issues and matters that will improve people's lives. And that is genuinely the motivation for most politicians. Of course, um, the misbehaviour, uh, the, the, the mistakes people make, um, the times when people step out of line always get a huge amount of coverage. But, you know, we've got 650 uh, members of parliament and most of those I know and deal with are actually really decent people. They're pretty good to deal with. They're pretty straight to deal with. And, and they are genuinely motivated by uh, the best uh, the best possible motives. And, and I know people find that strange. But yes, they are all human beings. Most of them are struggling with many of the sorts of things that the rest of us struggle with, of how to um, cope with um, family difficulties and family dramas and how to balance that with the demanding lives of being an MP. And, uh, I, you know, I, I know that people's opinions of 
politicians are pretty low. As journalists, I think in those those lists of who's the least, what's the least popular profession or the one that you have least respect for, uh, I, I don't know who sneaks in above the other. It's either journalists or politicians. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all pretty low down. Um, but I genuinely uh, think that the overwhelming majority of MPs, of course, there are a few bad pennies, but the overwhelming majority are, are just are trying to do their jobs. And, and it's not an easy job to pursue. Yeah, it can't be. It absolutely can't be. And I, I think, you know, it's a reason I asked that question is, you know, because I think you talk about uh, being on the pre-election tour with Tony Blair. And I think you're on, uh, you went on a, a sort of round the country trip with David Cameron as well. And you're spending time with these people when we're not just hearing the political taglines. I think on the news, we often just hear this is the party line, this is the party line, which doesn't. You know, even when very well well written, it doesn't often feel like normal human conversation. And so I just wonder when you're actually having a chat with people, that must give you a whole different insight into into how it's all working. Absolutely. And one of the key parts of the life of a lobby journalist is to get to know MPs, to get to know what motivates them. Um, They will spend a huge amount of their time just uh, having a coffee with somebody, having a drink, having a chat, having lunches. Yeah, lunches do still happen. Um, And those building up those contacts are absolutely vital because then the people who are writing our political stories will really have the broadest possible understanding of what lies behind many of the the issues and the rows and the battles that are going on. Um, And indeed, if if you're a, a journalist and a story breaks late at night, you need those contacts. You need to be able to ring somebody up and say, well, what do you make of this idea that the government's just come up with? Is that is that going to fly? Is that going to be the source of a huge row? Uh, is the opposition going to support it? Are Conservative MPs going to support it? You really need to develop those contacts. And one of the enormous values of being a lobby journalist and something which I really miss since I left the lobby is that ability just to walk around the Houses of Parliament and talk to MPs and ministers and say, well, you know, what's going on? What's on your agenda? Because sometimes it will be those chance encounters um, that will give you perhaps the first tip off of a story that's bubbling up, a row that's bubbling up, and will give you an idea for something that you can um, write or broadcast about in future. And of course, during the pandemic, that has been very difficult indeed. Um, Even now, although um, there are some MPs at Westminster, there are limited numbers. Um, The rules in Parliament are very strictly enforced. Um, For months, of course, journalists couldn't even go to Parliament. They were all working remotely. Then you really need your contacts so you can ring them up rather than just um, bumping into them. Um, But even now, uh, there are very strict rules in place. People have to observe social distancing. You have to wear a mask. Um, it's not quite the same as being, you know, huddled in the corner with a pint saying, yeah, well, you know, what's the gossip, which is when you quite often pick up some of the really interesting insider tips. 
Yes, I bet it must be different. So, and and I wouldn't I'd be curious to know if that's affected sort of how we've gotten news over the past year with this kind of lack of inside detail. Um, I, I was just going to ask you, um, before I ask you a final question, was was just if you missed it, you, you mentioned that you missed that bit. Do you miss being a lobby journalist? It sounds like a very hectic schedule and it, it must be something really nice now about not having to attend lobby meetings twice a day, <laughs> every single day. Yeah, well, I was part of a team at the BBC, so it wasn't me who had to go to both every day because we would um, deploy uh, one or two people to go and they would provide the um, the key points to those who were perhaps elsewhere, perhaps travelling around the country with the opposition leader, perhaps working on a different story, perhaps watching out for a vote in Parliament. Um, uh, so we had the luxury of that at the BBC. Smaller organisations, of course, um, find that more difficult. Um, I do, what I really miss is being right on that inside track of having that access, having that chance to just wander into parliament, wander up to MPs, uh, talk to them about what's going on, um, find out what's on their agenda. And that sense of really being on the inside track of our politics, which I'm still completely fascinated by. And um, of course, the demands of 24-hour news, social media, uh, radio, television, online means that you're not, uh, as a particularly as a broadcast journalist, you don't have the luxury of huge amounts of time to sort of wander around chatting people. Most of the time, you're racing from a quick chat or a quick briefing to get straight on air as quickly as you can, preferably before your competitors, and then quickly bash out a piece for the next radio summary. So there are those relentless demands and I am enjoying having a, a different pace on my show on Times Radio when I have lots of time to talk about all the issues that I'm still fascinated in um, but, but to talk about them in hopefully an informative and a relaxed way. Brilliant. Well, thank you again for joining us. As I said, your book, I, I think that's one of the, the the most exciting things about it. It really does give you a view into politics that not many people have had. And I think if you're interested in politics, it's fascinating to hear from someone who's been right in there as a lobby journalist, uh, you know, having these meetings that I think for many of us didn't even know were, were occurring, <laughs> even though I know they're now transparent. It's a, a whole different side to Westminster. Um, and, and the last question I, I want to ask you, it's just something that I ask every single guest on this show with the hope of furthering good info and good resources, um, which is that apart from yourself and your book and your Times Radio show, um, who are the political journalists and writers that you really enjoy reading? Who are the people that you go to and who would you recommend others to check out? Well, I have a huge amount of respect for all the Times political journalists. And I'm saying that not just because I quite often invite them onto my <laughs> Times Radio show to uh, give us a, a first glimpse at their exclusives, but journalists like Stephen Swinford, who is the Times political editor, um, the others on his uh, team, uh, Oliver Wright, Chris Smythe, Tim Shipman on Sunday, they are all journalists who I know have brilliant contacts and really do dig down into what's going on in our politics. So I genuinely, uh, and I'm not just saying this out of company loyalty, I genuinely rate them as political journalists who will give you a good and a balanced view of what is going on. But there are there are all of the, the senior journalists on all of our newspapers are, are, are excellent. They will all have a different perspective and a different take on it. Um, 
I'm I'm a, a big fan of podcasts, including, of course, your own. Um, I hesitate to recommend anything else. But uh, Jack Blanchard of Politico does um, a very interesting podcast, which is often takes a bit of a look behind the scenes at Westminster. That's worth a listen to. Nick Robinson, of course, a very high profile BBC journalist, um, does a, a, a programme called uh, Political Thinking, and that is a longer uh, um, it was. It is a much longer conversation with a leading politician when you get a bit more than in those annoying three-minute interviews when you feel that the uh, that the person asking the questions is interrupting all the time. Um, and I also find a lot of the writing in the Spectator fascinating. James Forsyth is an absolutely first-class journalist. Uh, Isabel Hardman, Katie Balls, all absolutely excellent. They are all people that I read and listen to all the time, but I'm sure that there are many others as well out there all doing an absolutely brilliant job. And I think Political journalists, you know, often get, do get, like politicians themselves, often do get a, a bad name. But I think that the political journalists that we have in this country are some of the, the most committed, the most diligent. And I think that if you look across the broad sweep of our political journalism, uh, I think it's unmatched anywhere in the world. Thanks to Carol for having time to chat and you can find her book Lobby Life at all good, bad and morally ambiguous bookshops and I've popped a link in the podcast blurb here too. Carol can also be found on Twitter at Carol Walker CW and on her regular Times radio show as well. And thanks to Emma Finnegan PR for arranging our chat. Who else should I talk to for this show? What other subjects should I hope to expand my tiny land of understanding about in the sea of complete political ignorance? Let me know via at Palpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can apply to be the director of the government's new Brexit Opportunities Unit and insist on trading recommendations for this show with me as part of the country's overall direction. But that likely means they'll get stuck in a lorry at a border and by the time they eventually reach me, if they ever do, they'll carry a £7,000 customs charge, which I'll refuse to pay. So as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And now this week's episode of Partly Political Broadcast bids you adieu, so please don't be rude and outbid it at the last minute as it won't make you popular. If you enjoy, or at the very least just bear with this show, then please do let other people know that it occurs in the depths of the internet by shouting about it on socials or just in real life, especially when walking under a bridge so it does a really cool echo thing. You know, that it sort of echoes around you and it sounds really loud. Oh, it's still great. Do also review the show on the podcast platform you use, giving us a fat five stars and some words of sheer joy, or even just unnecessary exclamation, or perhaps even just some in an ancient language that no one knows anymore. And if you could afford to, violently hurl a pound or two at the Kofi Patreon or ACAR supporter sites too. Deepest thanks so deep they're basically a dangerous pit and there should be a warning about it to ACAS, my brother the last sceptic and Cat Day and this will be back next week when Boris Johnson announces the new science investment money is all to work out how to build a bridge between Wales and the moon. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Jacob Rees-Mogg's Book of Successful Geniuses, featuring in-depth looks at just how these intelligent winners rose up the ranks to the fame they deserve. Featuring Paul Pot, Wiley Coyote, Magneto, Countess Elizabeth Bathory, Bean Dad and Matt Hancock. Available at all bookshops of terrible repute for two half-farthings and your firstborn. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.